Hi, gang. It's your pal, Matt Welch. Uh, I'm here uh, reading a couple of pieces about the uh, recently departed Mikhail Gorbachev. The first one is going to be uh, my obit, which published over reason on August 30th, uh, called uh, It Wasn't What He Wanted, But Gorbachev Allowed an Evil Empire to Collapse. Uh, the second is a thing uh, titled uh, My Lunch with Gorbachev, which originally appeared at the L.A. Times way back in 2007, and uh, we uh, cleaned it up and, and reprinted it and made it all purdy over at Paloma Media also uh, this week. Um, uh, before I start reading uh, them both, I just wanted to point out a little tidbit that I'd forgotten, which is my first ever published letter to the editor successfully, which was to my college newspaper before I had worked at it, was under the pseudonym um, uh, Napoleon Briggs. Long story. Uh, and uh, it was about the uh, uh, swap of prisoners between the Soviet Union and the United States involving Nick Daniloff. And uh, I don't really remember what uh, the basic thrust of it. I just know that it included the phrase, Gorby the pie-eating Ukrainian. So you could see that even at age 18, um, I was jackass. Okay, uh, I'm going to start with the reason piece. It wasn't what he wanted, but Gorbachev allowed an evil empire to collapse. If the late Mikhail Gorbachev had gotten his way, the world would look a lot different than it does now. Socialism would still be the dominant economic system, from Leipzig to Yakutsk. The Warsaw Pact would still exist. A unified Germany would not, nor would the independent Baltic states. Above all, the planet would still be blighted by the wheezing and malevolent existence of what Ronald Reagan accurately described as the evil empire, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. I regret it to this day, Gorbachev said to Werner Herzog a couple of years ago about the collapse of the Soviet Union. It is hard. Poor thing. Yet we should not judge the eighth and final Soviet leader who died Tuesday at the age of 91 by his base geopolitical desires, but rather by the glorious human flourishing that his actions, and especially his inactions, allowed to take place. Gorbachev's economically desperate late 1980s policies of glasnost, openness, and perestroika, restructuring, unleashed a whirlwind of freedom-seeking among hundreds of millions of captive peoples, quickly overwhelming any one man's or regime's ability to control it. And during most, though definitely not all, key moments of potential armed conflict between dictatorial hardliners and outgunned revolutionaries, Gorby told the generals to stand down. This is an achievement worth lingering on and learning from. History is not overstuffed with examples of outstretched empires that withdrew into a more reasonable perimeter without putting up one hell of a bloody fight. Surely it helped in the decision-making process that Moscow was dead broke and hopelessly outmatched in just about every competitive resource except oil reserves and nuclear weapons. Another perennially underrated factor in the comparative peacefulness of the Soviet collapse is that, contrary to the propaganda of both Vladimir Putin and Gorbachev himself, neither the newly freed countries nor their superpower protector sought the types of revenge that historically is typical among vanquishers. The result was that, under the watches of both Gorbachev and George H.W. Bush, November 9, 1989, the day the Berlin Wall was knocked down by fed-up Germans, became the most liberating day of the most liberating month of the most liberating year in human history. 
hardly limited to the long-suffering nations of Central Europe, the imperial drawdowns from both sides of the Cold War brought crucial and long-awaited relief to the proxy war-scarred post-colonialist countries of Africa and South America. The fact that Gorbachev planned for almost none of this should not dull our appreciation for him not getting in the way. That asteroid-level event of totalitarian destruction comes with a takeaway for contemporary America. The world will be more free and self-governing after the United States stops assuming responsibility for other people's security arrangements. But as we've seen during the past six murderous months, the nation of Russia has never allowed the perceived wound of its imperial amputations to heal. There could and should have been a real post-Cold War settlement, just as most every other significant geopolitical conflagration has been followed by major international agreements over borders, populations, and security arrangements. But alas, all sides to that 20th century defining conflict squandered that opportunity. Gorbachev was of no great help in that process, nurturing, whether authentically or in the name of domestic reputation salvage, the kind of sullen nationalist paranoia that Putin would make his whole rhizome d'etre. The world lives daily with the disastrous downstream results. It's hard to communicate to those who weren't there what better times his birthmark decorated forehead once foretold. From affable acceptance of the winds of change to cameos in Wim Mender's movies, to his iconic role in a Pizza Hut ad, Gorbachev felt like, and was, a marvelous transition figure from Brezhnevian totalitarianism to this new thing that was being birthed in the 1990s. It was naive and, yes, neoliberal, uh, to be sure, but it was more hopeful than the world Gorby now leaves behind. R.I.P. All right, this is My Lunch with Gorbachev. Originally published under the headline Gorbachev's Air uh, in the L.A. Times on April 17th, 2007. Cleaned up nice and pretty over at Paloma Media on August 30th. Here goes. One year ago this month, and people, this is me in contemporary Matt reminding you again, that's a reference to 2006. This is the last time I will do that. So one year ago this month, I found myself in the unusual position of hosting lunch for Mikhail Gorbachev. It was a work meeting at the L.A. Times, not some kind of rubber chicken tribute. The former Soviet president was in town to talk up his Green Cross environmental initiatives. But there was something personally chilling about staring into the eyes of a man whose military shot and bludgeoned to death 13 peaceful Lithuanian protesters a full 14 months after the Berlin Wall fell, at a time when I was living in a country, Czechoslovakia, still occupied by tens of thousands of Red Army troops. Things at lunch were amicable enough until I asked the former Pizza Hut pitchman whether he thought there was anything factual behind the persistent reporting in the West that Russian President Vladimir Putin has been backsliding away from democracy. Gorbachev's smile disappeared. His eyes narrowed to lumps of burning coal, and for the next ten minutes or so he barked out an angry lecture defending Putin and savaging the United States for working actively to humiliate Russia and make her experiments with democracy and capitalism fail. That memory of the bear uncaged came back to me this weekend as I read stories about Putin sicking his riot cops on peaceful protesters, beating scores and arresting hundreds, including unlikely opposition leader Garry Kasparov, the KGB chief-turned-president is now openly outlawing political parties, including Gorbachev's, 
shutting down media outlets and prohibiting free assembly. He is yet another in a long line of Red Square autocrats. But what few Americans seem willing to accept is that Gorbachev belongs on that list, too. It's not just the tanks that ripped through Vilnius in 1991, though those should never disappear down the non-Baltic memory hole. It's that the so-called January events were part of Gorbachev's energetic and ultimately futile attempt to stand athwart the breakup of the USSR and therefore the liberation of hundreds of millions of repressed people yelling stop. This weekend, I was lucky enough to see 20 minutes of an unreleased documentary entitled The Singing Revolution about the peaceful 1987 to 1991 Estonian independence struggle of the same name. One of the film's rare treats is a 1989 clip of an irritated Gorbachev snapping at Estonia's leaders at a behind-closed-doors meeting of some sort. The Russian leader sternly tells the Estonians to mind their politeness and lets them know that whatever legal setup they're agitating for, the non-negotiable condition was that it had to remain socialist. Scenes like this played out all over the former East Bloc during the first Bush administration. Yes, Gorbachev left the genies, let the genies of Glasnost and Perestroika out of the bottle, but he was also constantly trying to stuff them back in. In some places, notably East Germany, he was far more liberal than the local communist leaders. Yet in others, basically everywhere in Russia's near abroad, he made Vladimir Putin look cuddly. After the Berlin Wall fell, Gorbachev was against German reunification, against German membership in NATO, against NATO troops being deployed in East Germany, but definitely for vendors. Luckily for Germans, he was also broke and no longer able to illegally dictate the security arrangements of sovereign countries. He and his Politburo genuinely believed that the Warsaw Pact and Comecon had a realistic role to play in post-imperial Europe. Instead, both were dissolved by their newly freed members in 1991, and that the post-communist states and post-Soviet republics were too small and would collapse economically once their links were severed from the USSR. Instead, the formerly Soviet Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia have become the Baltic Tigers, growing by 7% a year and more. In short, Gorbachev cracked open the door of freedom, but it was the citizens of Moscow's former empire who rushed through and jammed it open permanently, far wider than he ever contemplated or would have been able to tolerate. Does this kind of 18-year-old debate even matter anymore? I'd argue yes. At a time when the White House is consciously using Cold War tactics and Central European analogies in the new twilight struggle against Islamic radicalism, while Vladimir Putin clubs protesters and the U.S. Congress debates deploying missile defenses to the Czech Republic and Poland over Russia's fierce objections, sorting out recent history is a helpful way to tiptoe through the minefield of the present. The end.